23, LL be ready, sir or, Charles replied, calmly, future A, I want it now, what's that China doing here, I thought you noticed that Ding Wang was playing drafts with me, you're not paid to think, I do that for all the crew, then the skipper turned his attention to prying into the pots and pans, to see if he could discover anything which would give him an opportunity to find fault, to his evident annoyance he did not succeed in discovering anything, for Charlie had done his work thoroughly, and the cooking utensils looked much cleaner than when he entered on his duties, in a few minutes the tea was ready, and as soon as the skipper tasted it he made a grimace, and exclaimed, beastly wash, do you hear, he exclaimed, finding that Charlie did not speak, it's wash, it is made in exactly the same way as the other tea you have had during the day, Charlie declared, then I must have drunk wash before, but I won't drink this, here, China, you drink it, me no want any, skipper, King Wang answered, don't want it, eh, what does that matter, drink it at once, King Wang shook his head, and the skipper immediately flung the contents of his mugful in the Chinaman's face, the tea was very hot, and with a cry of pain King Wang ran at his tormentor, stepping backwards quickly, to avoid him, the skipper stumbled over the weatherboard at the entrance to the galley, and fell heavily onto the deck, the mate, who had been pacing the deck, ran to pick him up, what's the matter, skipper, he asked, that China has knocked me down, the skipper declared, he did nothing of the kind, Charlie declared, and related to the mate exactly what happened, you'd better get an hour or two sleep before we haul, the mate said to the skipper, and, taking his arm, led him away, I think we had better turn in also, King Wang said, and Charlie at once went forward with him, the other men were already asleep, the ventilators were all closed, and the fox single quote as single quote Lee was so close and stuffy that Charlie thought, at first, that he would have to go on deck again, but, being very tired, he determined to stay where he was, and clambered into his bank, he slept soundly, in spite of the bad air, until King Wang aroused him, it was a quarter to eleven, and the men were donning their oilskins, with a view to hauling, you had better put the kettle on, King Wang said to Charlie, all hands will want tea before they turn in again, Charlie, wearing his oilskins, went to the galley at once, as he passed along the deck he shivered, for a breeze had sprung up, and the air struck cold, after the stuffiness of the fox single quote as single quote Lee, continued on page 226, the Duke of Wellington's head gardener, we must not forget the gardener, says a visitor, describing Walmer Castle at the time when Wellington was Lord Warden of the St. Ports, this gardener, a fine-looking, elderly man, was at the Battle of Waterloo, and when his regiment was disbanded, the Duke offered him the post of head gardener at Walmer Castle, the good fellow objected, for, to use his own words, he did not then know a moss rose from a cabbage, but the Duke was determined, and, as a soldier, the man could but obey orders, but now, he said to the visitor, I get on pretty well, and like it, he was next asked, oh, yes, but suppose war were to break out would you be a soldier again, why, that must depend on the duke, if he said I must go, of course I must, how did you manage when you first came here, why, as well as I could, it was rather awkward, perhaps you studied hard read a good deal, no, I didn't read at all, you looked about you, then, yes, I did that, and now you get on very well, why, yes, 
but I am plagued sometimes, the names of the flowers puzzle me sadly, and what does the duke say to that, oh, I have him there, said the soldier gardener, for he doesn't know them himself, the visitor also stated that the garden abounded in flowers not rare ones, but rich and luxuriant, with a well-kept lawn, in the midst of which was a lime tree, which the duke always declared to be the finest he had ever seen. The experiment of turning a soldier into a head gardener seems to have been quite successful. Two medals. A little English schoolboy was sauntering along the quay, looking rather bored. It was a picturesque scene this port of the Black Sea with the varied craft in the harbor, and the varied nationalities represented by the groups of men who chattered and gesticulated, or lounged and slept in the sunshine. But what? He thought, were the summer holidays without cricket? Of course, it was jolly to be with his people again, but Dick did wish they lived in England. The boys at school had envied him because his journey home would take him through the unrestful Balkan territory, and he might have all manner of adventures. It was very hard that there had been none, though the train after his had been held up, and had not got through without some fighting. He reached the end of the stone pier where half a dozen men were leaning over a low parapet. What is your pleasure, little my lord? One asked him. This was their nickname for the boy, who had been a favorite with them since he had learned to order them about in their own tongue when not much more than a baby. My pleasure is a cricket match, he answered, and as far as I can see it is a pleasure I shall have to do without. Would not little my lord like to fish? Asked another. See, one already is trying his luck and he pointed to a boy about Dick's age sitting on the parapet with his line in the water below. A foolish place to try, with the current running as strong as it does round the end of the pier, Dick said. He is not likely to get a bite there. Even as he spoke the boy jumped up suddenly and turned round. No one saw exactly how it happened, but he missed his balance, and with a scream fell into the water. For a minute Dick waited. He was such a little chap, and of course one of those big men would jump in after the boy. But no, they stood staring at each other with terrified faces, and never moved. Then over the wall went Dick into the water beneath. The boy had risen, and he struck out for him, reaching him easily enough, for the current carried him. It was getting back which was difficult. The men at the pier had ran about and shouted in a frantic way. A boat, shouted one, a rope, called another, while a third wrung his hands and moaned. They are lost, they are lost and Dick battled and battled against the current with the dead weight of the boy hindering him from making any perceptible way. It never even occurred to him that by letting his burden go he might at any rate save himself, and his English pluck came to his help. He wouldn't be beaten, he just had to get to land somehow, and he must not let himself think of anything else. The men, too, had at last found a rope and were flinging it to him, if only he could get near it, once it was just within his grasp. But he was beaten back again. Then, with a final tremendous effort, he struck out again and reached it, and held on like grim death. Though the singing in his ears and his struggling, fanning breath warned him his strength was nearly exhausted. By this time, however, a boat was nearing them, and soon the boys were on land. Though the lad Dick had saved was with difficulty brought back to consciousness, Dick himself was rather white and limp, but otherwise not much the worse for his adventure. Why didn't one of you go in after him? I gave you a chance, he said to the men. The water was too cold, muttered one. Too deep, said another. Too dangerous, growled a third. And the small schoolboy shrugged his shoulders and went home. 
to be made a great fess over by his mother and sisters, which he thought absurd, but he liked the quiet look of pleasure his father gave him when he came in after hearing the news in the town, though he only said, good business, my son, and although he is very shy of showing them, I think Dick is rather proud of his two medals, one of the country where the courageous act was performed, and that other of dull bronze which the Royal Humane Society presents to England's brave sons and daughters. Dick thought it took far more courage to walk up and receive this medal amidst the cheers of the boys and their gay company on prize day, than it did to jump into the rescue of the boy in the Black Sea. Animal makeshifts. True anecdotes. I instead of a hand. The wonderful contrivances by which animals manage to do beautiful work without tools. To walk without feet. To fly without wings. To talk without a voice. And to make their wants known not only to each other but to their human friends without understanding or speaking human words, would fill a large book. No creature boasts of a hand like our own, even that of the monkey, though his fingers resemble man's, has a thumb which is nearly useless. The American spider monkeys prefer to use their long tails as hands, plucking fruits with the tips and carrying them to their mouths. The elephant uses his nose as a hand for his trunk is nothing else but a long nose and with this makeshift hand he can pick up either a heavy cannon or a sixpence from the ground. The horse uses his tail as a hand to drive off flies which he cannot otherwise reach. On board ship a hen was once seen to use her neck as a hand. She and the other fowls used to quarrel over the laying boxes, and though the nests looked all alike to a human eye, this hen coveted one special box, and would lay nowhere else. One day her master took the china nest egg out of the box and put it into another one to see what she would do. He watched her through the chink of a door, and saw her hunt till she found the egg, curl her neck round it like a big finger, lift it thus, and carry it back to the old box, where she sat on it in triumph. Stories of rats who have been seen to carry off eggs, embracing them by their tails, are common enough, and everybody has watched animals of different kinds using their mouths to carry things from place to place. Not only lions, tigers, wolves, and bears carry their young in this way, but rabbits, squirrels, mice, and many other creatures. The mother whale tucks her little one under her huge fin, using it as a hand and arm in one, in time of danger she carries him off thus at the risk of her own life from under the very harpoons of the whalers. All young animals have an instinct which prompts them to run to their parents for protection when frightened, trusting not only in the older and wiser heads, but in the faithful hearts which have never failed them. Though sheep, cattle, deer, and such like, have no notion of using their jaws as hands, or of lifting their little ones, many of the young will use their limbs to cling to those who are stronger and swifter than themselves. The four-footed elders will perish rather than desert the youngsters, and will, if possible, contrive to beat a retreat, helping along the weaker ones as best they can. A very touching story of the devotion of deer to their fawns comes from America. While two men were riding along a creek in California, they saw, some distance ahead, a doe and her fawn drinking from the river. The bank was very steep, and the river deep at that point. When the deer saw the hunters they were startled, and in trying to turn, the little one lost its balance and fell into the creek. The water was running very swiftly, and of course the fawn was carried downstream. At this the poor mother seemed to lose all fear of the men, and ran wildly along the bank trying to reach her little one with her head, but in vain, she next ran forward for a short distance, plunged instead herself by planting her feet firmly among some rocks, 
and waited. Presently the fawn was washed against her, and, as it was being swept by, caught hold of its mother, stretching out its forelegs and clasping her neck, much as a little child uses his arms in clinging to his nurse. The Dovan carefully stepped ashore with her precious burden. She lay down beside the baby deer, and, although the hunters were not thirty yards away, she licked and fondled the little thing till it rose to run, when she too sprang up, and the pair trotted off in harm to the woods. Many birds use their wings as arms and hands when flight will not serve their turn. A partridge was seen to hustle and drive her little troop of chicks into the shelter of a rabbit hole with her wings, out of the way of a hawk whose shadow had fallen on the grass at their side. Here she kept them prisoners till all was safe. The lesson to be drawn from such stories is that even wild, and hawk creatures do not use their limbs in a senseless way as parts of a machine, without thinking but are able to turn them to a variety of uses in times of difficulty. We shall, of course, find that tame animals such as the horse, dog, and cat act more wisely in such ways than their wild relations. The dog, for instance, turns his rough idea of using his mouth for carrying food or young ones, to fetching and carrying for his own benefit or his master's. A handsome brown spaniel lately noticed that his mistress, in carrying a bowl of water, Upset some of the contents on the floor, off dashed Master Jack, intent on making himself generally useful, and quickly returned with the house flannel from the kitchen, this he laid beside the pool, with an intelligent, uplifted look which said, there, wipe it up, did not this sensible fellow's mouth become a splendid makeshift hand, and his glance an excellent speech, Edith Carrington, the pitcher plant, the leaves and flowers of plants often grow into very strange shapes. The flowers of various kinds of orchids are very remarkable for the peculiar forms which they take. Some of them have a great resemblance to bees, flies, or butterflies, and this resemblance is at times so great that we wonder whether it is only an accidental likeness, or whether it serves some useful purpose. One of the oddest shapes which any plant takes, however, is that of the leaves of the pitcher plant, and in this case naturalists, who have studied the plant carefully are able to show us that the strange shape of the leaf really serves a purpose. The pitcher plants are most abundant in the islands of Borneo, Java, and Sumatra, and in the Malay Peninsula, though not so plentiful elsewhere. They are also found in Ceylon, Madagascar, the Moluccas, and one or two other places. The plant is a kind of creeping or climbing shrub which runs along the ground, or climbs up other shrubs and short trees. It seems to thrive best upon the mountaintops and the summits of the mountains of Borneo are often gaily decked with it. There are 30 or 40 different kinds of pitcher plants, varying in size a great deal. But the strange thing about all of them is that the ends of their leaves are shaped like pitchers, or perhaps it would describe them better if we said they were like jugs with lids. It is from this peculiarity that the plant takes its name. The leaf is the shape of any ordinary leaf until it reaches its point, where it is drawn out into a long stalk or tendril at the end of which is the jug or pitcher, which, you must remember, is formed out of the leaf itself. Each plant has its own shape of jug, and the jugs vary in size a good deal. Some are long and slender, others are broad and shallow. Some are tiny jugs only an inch deep, while others are perhaps twenty inches deep. Their color is green, but the mouth of the jug and the underside of the lid, which is always open, are spotted with red or purple, somewhat like a flower. Not only do these strange leaves look like jugs, but they are also used as jugs. Each of them contains a little supply of water, 
varying with the size of the jug from a few drops in the smallest, to as much as two quarts in the largest of them. Thirsty travelers have sometimes quenched their thirst from these natural jugs, when no other water was to be found, though the water itself is palatable, it is a little warm, and it is always full of insects. If anyone were to watch one of these jugs of the pitcher plant for some time attentively, he would soon find that it served as a trap for flies and insects. One by one the little creatures alight upon the outside of the jug, and creep into the open mouth, and few or none of them ever return. They slip into the water at the bottom of the jug and are drowned. If we examine a jug carefully, in order to learn why the insects enter it, and how it is that they cannot get out again, we shall be surprised at the clever way in which the trap is made. The mouth of the jug has a thick ring round it, which makes it firm, and keeps it always open. The lid stands over this mouth, and seems to be always raised a good deal, so that insects and flies may enter freely but it covers the mouth in such a way as to prevent anything from falling accidentally into the jug from above. The underside of the lid and the mouth of the jug are often gaily colored, so as to attract insects, as brightly colored flowers do. Some of the jugs even make a little honey, which, forming just inside the mouth, attracts insects by its scent. Within the jug, just below the mouth, there is a row of stiff hooks, which have their points turned inwards towards the bottom of the jug. Below the spikes the sides of the jug are so smooth and slippery that few insects could stand on them. It is easy to see how the trap works. Insects are attracted to the pitcher by the bright colors of the lid or the scent of the honey. They creep into the mouth, and crawl between the hooks, whose sharp points are set the other way. And they step upon the smooth and slippery inside of the jug. In another instant they have slipped into the water at the bottom of the jug. Do what they will, they cannot climb up the slippery sides of the pitcher or pass the row of sharp hooks, whose points are turned against them, they are caught. Now all this is very strange and wonderful, and it makes us wish to know why Providence has given the plant this clever machinery. We cannot help asking ourselves why the pitcher plant entraps these insects. I am afraid that you would hardly be able to answer this question for yourself, however carefully you might watch a pitcher plant. Indeed, it is only a few years since clever men, making careful experiments, were able to find out the real truth. The fluid at the bottom of the pitcher digests those insects, and the pitcher plant feeds upon them, just as the juices of our stomach dissolve meat, so that it may pass into the blood and nourish us. So the fluid in the jug of the pitcher plant dissolves the flesh of the insects which fall into it, and makes that flesh fit to nourish the plant. This strange plant lives, in part at least, upon flesh, and all the clever mechanism of its jug is used simply to get a meal. One and one make two, as through the busy world you go. Remember this is true, that though one seems a little thing, yet one and one make two. The task one could not do alone, is done with help from you. For though you are a little one, yet one and one make two. The thread that's rolled the reel around, that baby's hands can break, when with it other threads are bound. The strongest rope doth make, the rope thrown by some helping hand, and drawn the waters through may bring a drowning man to land, so one and one make two. The minutes grow into the hours, the hours into the day, the days to weeks, two months, two years, and thus time flies away, and deeds of good by children done, though small they seem to you, may grow into a mighty sum, for one and one make two. Cruisers in the clouds, V.I., the giant and its adventures, two hundred needlewomen were busy for a month making the giant's coat. 
it contained 20,000 yards of white silk, of double thickness, at 6 shillings a yard, and when finished measured 90 yards round and 60 yards in height, when it was filled it held 60-98 cubic yards of gas, and Maynard, its master, introduced it to the people of Paris in the hope that the money they would pay to see it would enable him to carry out his experiments with flying machines, on October 4, 1863, the giant was ready to make its first voyage in the clouds, and nearly 500,000 people assembled to see it start, it was like a cottage made of wicker work, and mounted on small wheels, in two of the four walls there was a door with two small windows each side of it, and inside there was a little world of wonders, the cottage was only 15 feet long, 12 wide, and 8 high, but it was divided up so carefully by thin partitions that there was room for a small printing office, a photographic department, a refreshment room, a compartment for the captain's bed and passenger's luggage, and another at the opposite end, with three beds in it, outside all this, but inside the walls of wicker work, was an inflated rubber lining, so as to prevent it from sinking if, by any mischance, the giant should fall into the sea, thus, According to circumstances, the building could be either the car of a balloon, a ship at sea, or a caravan being drawn by horses upon the wheels already mentioned along a country road, from the inside a narrow stairway led on to the roof, or deck, when all was ready, and Maynard, leaning from the deck, gave the word, the ropes were to let go, and the giant rose solemnly towards the sky, fifteen voyagers waved their hats and handkerchiefs over the bulwarks returning the greetings of the crowd till carried beyond sight and hearing, though the launch was a success, the poor giant had been served very badly by some careless persons, all unknown to those on board, the pilot, a clever aeronaut, named Goddard, was a little surprised that very soon after leaving the ground he had to begin throwing out ballast, to stop them from sinking, this went on for some hours, and when darkness had fallen, and all the world had disappeared, it became clear that the balloon must descend, they had attained a height of many thousand feet, it was nearly nine o'clock, and supper on deck was over, when Goddard, finding that the descent was becoming too rapid, called out, hold to the ropes, every passenger seized some portion of the ropes, so that the shock of contact with the earth might be somewhat lessened, down came the giant, a great deal more swiftly than it had risen, and the last bags of ballast were emptied over the side with little effect, the blow was tremendous, and the wonder is that the passengers escaped with their lives, an inquiry was held, and the giant itself was proved blameless, the valves for allowing the escape of gas had never been properly closed, thus, from the very moment when they left Paris, the gas was pouring out at the top, and it was only through the enormous quantity used that they succeeded in rising at all, a fortnight later and Maynard was ready to sail again, this time the giant had nine passengers, who were destined to make an eventful voyage, anchor was weighed in the evening, and very soon, at a great height, all eyes were turned to watch the beautiful sunset, as the shadows of night gathered round them, however, more than one traveler looked anxiously at the gigantic ball above, supposing anything should go wrong with it, it looked such a tremendous distance down to the earth, when day dawned again at last, after a night during which no one had closed his eyes, they found themselves hanging over the fens of Holland, many miles from Paris, fearing that the wine might carry them out to sea. They agreed to descend, but, on reaching the lower air, the huge balloon was caught in what proved to be almost a hurricane. 
it drove them towards the ground at a long angle, until, like a falling kite, the giant struck the earth head foremost, dragging the car behind it at a terrible speed, the travelers hung on for dear life, again and again the car struck, and rebounded thirty or forty feet into the air, with the first blow the valve rope was jerked beyond reach, so that it became impossible to let the gas escape, mile after mile they tore through the country, crashing into trees, and scattering herds of cattle right and left, all the anchor ropes, dropped one after the other, had been snapped like thread, the last catching in the roof of a cottage, and tearing it open before giving way, then, to the horror of the passengers, a railway train appeared a short distance ahead, spinning along at great speed, a collision seemed inevitable, but with one united effort they shouted to the driver, he heard them, and reversed his engine, and the next moment they whirled by, dragging telegraph wires and poles after them, and now Hero came to their rescue, Jewel Scottard, the pilot's brother, after many fruitless attempts, climbed into the network and secured the valve rope, the gas was now slowly discharged, and before the bag was empty the passengers had either jumped or been jolted from the car, bruised and shaken, but happily without loss of life, after making such a wonderful name for itself, the giant took a short sea voyage on board a real ship, and crossed the channel to England, and, blown out with harmless air, hung under the great glass dome of the Crystal Palace for visitors to admire, after this it made only one or two more journeys to the clouds, and ended its career as a poor captive balloon in the gardens of Cremorne, afloat on the Dogger Bank, a story of adventure on the North Sea and in China, continued from page 219, much to his relief. Charlie found that the galley fire had not gone out. I kept it going, Cook, a grimy young trimmer declared. It would have gone out long ago if I hadn't looked after it. And I filled the kettle for you. Got a bit of grub to give me. Charlie took out a chunk of bread, dabbed a spoonful of marmalade on top of it, and gave it to the lad. Anytime you want anything done, I'll do it, the trimmer declared, and departed. As there was nothing to detain Charlie in the galley he went forward to assist in hauling. The skipper was on the bridge, the mate was working the donkey engine, which was fast drawing in the long wire ropes attached to the net, and the deckhands stood at the starboard side gunnel, watching for the net to appear. An electric light was hung up at the bridge, so that the men could see to do the work they had in hand. For a moment or two Charlie stood at the foot of the bridge, waiting for the skipper or the mate to tell him what to do. Stand here, King Wang said, quietly, but loud enough for him to hear. Charlie nodded his head and took up his position about three feet away from the Chinaman. Soon the net appeared above water, and the men, bending over the gunwale, grasped it with their hands, and, tugging all together, pulled it slowly but surely upwards. Where are the fish? Charlie asked, surprised at seeing none in the part of the net at which they had been tugging. Ford, King Wang answered and as he spoke the donkey engine started panting and puffing, and the part of the net to which the Chinaman had pointed was now raised high above the gunwale. It resembled a huge cooking net which had been lifted out of a gigantic pan. It was crowded with fish, and as it was pulled in and suspended over the pound made on the deck, the very small fish, mostly dead, fell through. Others, with wide open mouths, were caught in the meshes. A fisherman now stepped under the dripping net, and tied it at the bottom and sprang quickly aside as the catch of fish fell with a thud into the pound. What a mixture! Charlie exclaimed as he gazed at the fish jumping, wriggling, and sliding about in the pound. What are they? 
Cobb, Place, Headache, and Turbot, King One replied, but he only named a few of them, the catch included also Ling, Soul, Whiting, Dab, Gurnet, Oysters, Crabs, Whelks, Catfish, Starfish, and a large amount of ocean scrapings, Charlie stood watching the struggling mass, deeply interested, but King One whispered to him, come away, or you'll have the skipper at you, we are going to shoot now, Charlie bestirred himself at once, and assisted in shooting the gear, when that had been done without a hitch, the work of sorting, cleaning, and packing the fish was begun, three men stepped into the pound, trampling on the fish until they had made a clear space for their feet, give a hand there, cook, the skipper shouted, and Charlie stepped into the pound, he had not the heart to tread on the still living fish as the others were doing, and in his anxiety to avoid hurting them, he slipped and fell against the gunnel, his Sue West were falling overboard, the other men stopped work at once, and looked at him in a by no means friendly way, the skipper abused him loudly and fiercely, it was my own Sue Wester, Charlie declared, unable to understand why the skipper should be so excited over the loss, then why don't you jump overboard and save it, we will fish you up next time we haul, the men laughed heartily at this grim joke, take the skipper's advice, mate, one of them said, I want some new boots badly, it is thought a bad omen if a fisherman's Sue Wester is blown overboard, King Wong explained in a whisper, whereupon Charlie laughed loudly at the superstitious idea, stop that row, the skipper shouted, and start cleaning the fish, Charlie took out his clasp knife, and seized a place, don't cut that, King Wong warned him, put the place in the box just as they are, Charlie hesitated, for the fish was not yet dead, and he did not like the idea of packing it away while it was alive, here, stow it away, a fisherman growled, and snatching it out of his hand flopped it in the box and smacked a dead fish on top of it, the place were the only ones which had not to be cut open, as each fish was cleaned it was tossed into another pound, and when the whole of the catch, with the exception of the place, oysters, whelks, and the useless fish, were in this, the hose was turned on to the silvery mass, when the fish had been thoroughly cleansed with water, they were packed away in boxes, which were at once stowed away in the hold between layers of ice, Charlie was not required to assist in the work in the hold, and therefore he hurried to the bucket, on which was painted all hands, and indulged in a wash, he was fortunate in being first, for fresh water is not plentiful on a trawler, and one bucketful has to suffice for the whole crew, from the bucket, Charlie went to the galley and made the tea, everyone, from the skipper to the ship's boy, had a mugful, some had two, the North Sea fishermen are inveterate tea drinkers, having drunk their tea, the men threw off their oilies and turned in again with all their clothes on, it isn't worth while undress, 